The reading today is from John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm always so thankful for how the Spirit's working in you, brothers and sisters. And especially in the worship leader who picks the songs throughout the week and they just, they speak all the things that I need to hear myself to come up here. They prepare our hearts for, to, for us to hear these truths just in the right way. So I'm thankful for all of you in the way you serve one another. Let's pray that God would use me to bring his eternal truth into our hearts. God of highest heaven, you are from above and you are above all. Lord Jesus, you are full of the Holy Spirit without measure. And you have come with your spirit into this world that we may have life, eternal life, that we may be redeemed and restored into a relationship with our great God. God, we are so tempted, as the song said, in many ways to think that our skills, that our our resources, our work is somehow able to accomplish so much. And yet it is all worthless compared to the eternal power and authority and work that you do in your triune being. So help us now to see See you on display in all of your majesty and all of your glory and to be humbled to where we ought to be below, far below all things, 
humbled to our faces to admit that compared to you, we are nothing. And yet in you, in you, we have everything. Show us Christ for his glory, by his power that he purchased for us on his cross. Amen. Mawith. Mawith is what brings us together today. I'm glad you laughed because you know what I'm talking about. That silly scene from, from the uh, Princess Bride, the climax of the whole movie where Prince Humperdinck is about to marry the, the beautiful princess and her heroic lover is fighting his way to get there to interrupt the wedding. But all we remember is that crazy priest and how he led that wedding. I love weddings. They're so much fun. I've done a few of them for you. It's such a delight to be part of them. Weddings are packed full of of meaning, of purpose, excitement, hope, joy, and potential for world-changing stuff. And I'm always honored when someone asks me to be involved in their wedding. I get to help prepare them through counseling for the wedding and, and for their marriage. I get to walk them through that special day and then send them out into God's hands to enjoy the pleasures of being one flesh. It's such a delight just to be part of it. But how shameful would it be for me, the pastor, to make myself the center of attention of someone else's wedding. How distracting would it be to put myself on display as something that you need to remember from this person's wedding? That would be outrageous. Now, the pastor certainly does have an important role to play in a wedding. He helps the couple get to this point with lots of teaching on the meaning of marriage and some practical advice for living a joyful marriage. He's the legal authority for creating this union. He's the trained theologian to help saturate the event with God's truth. All these things are vital for a proper wedding and marriage. Yet they're meant to be kept in their place. To serve a role pointing to other people. Namely, a bride, a groom, and their God. The pastor does his work best when the people forget about him and are just in awe of the others. Of course, you know that would be wrong for me to steal the limelight at a wedding, but all of us do such things every day in our lives when we try to make our lives, this, this world, even church, about ourselves. When we try to draw the attention to ourselves. This is Christ's world setting up his wedding. And each of us is here for the purpose of pointing people, getting people to that wedding. But like Adam and Eve in the garden, we find ways to turn the attention back to ourselves, to give ourselves meaning and purpose and pleasure, to define for ourselves what is good and find pleasure apart from God. Oftentimes we're pretty good at putting a Christian positive spin on it to make it sound righteous. But if we're honest, we would admit that much of it is really just a selfish attempt to get more credit for ourselves. And this is the struggle at the heart of our text today. 
John the Baptist is doing some important work and his disciples are challenged by a Jewish representative about John's place in God's plan. What's he doing? How will it continue? And they feel a little discouraged, maybe even cheated. And they're pushing John to fight back or make a claim to take more credit. And he refuses. Instead, he reminds them that our job in this world is to simply bear witness to Christ's authority through joyful servanthood. Bear witness to Christ's authority through joyful servanthood. Because we're always tempted to scheme our way into greater joy by gaining more influence for ourselves. But John explains that his greatest joy is simply found in humble Ordinary obedience that points people to Jesus. So we're going to see this in our text in two parts. First, in verses 22 to 30, it highlights John's joyful service. He is gladly, he just gladly accepts his role as the forerunner to Christ himself. Knowing that his greatest joy is already secure in Jesus. And then the gospel writer shifts to exalt Christ's heavenly authority in verses 31 to 36, explaining why it is so much better anyway to put your faith in him. Only Jesus has the power to satisfy all your longings with the greatest eternal pleasures. So I pray from this text that you will be inspired to live your ordinary life really well as a pointer Not to your own greatness, but to the abundant joy that you experience in Christ's greatness. So let's take a look a little closer at John's joyful service in verses 22 to 30. I'll just read them again. These are the more important words. The gospel writer says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them. And was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So our gospel writer is setting up this scene for us, telling us about some baptizing going on at Anon near Salim. Nobody has a clue where those places are. There's some arguments about that, but what's really important is that these places were known to have lots of water. And if you're going to symbolize purifying sinners from their sin, washing them completely head to toe, symbolically representing complete and utter washing from sin, then you're going to need a lot of water. 
And it's interesting that John puts this section after the wedding at Cana and Jesus purifying the temple and then the conversation with Nicodemus. All of these stories are giving glimpses into Jesus' authority as the Messiah to bring purity, to purify the world. And each of these stories also reveals new people who just don't get it. They don't see who he is and what he has truly come to do. And so the end of this chapter is now wrapping up all of these stories to launch us into further ministry as Jesus heads north to explain to us who Jesus is by comparing him to John the Baptist. Verse 22 says that Jesus was at the same place that John was at. They were both baptizing. And this created a little bit of a stir. This Jewish representative comes up and starts talking with John's disciples and pointing out some concerns or maybe inconsistencies that he sees. And it gets them a little riled up. John is no stranger to controversy and conflict. He's quite comfortable with it. As we saw in chapter one, he had his own little tussle with the Jewish leadership. Verse 24 even tells us he's going to keep engaging in conflict until he gets arrested. So what is it that's got John's disciples all worked up? John is comfortable with this conflict, but his disciples are not. Well, verse 26 gives us a little clue in the concern that they bring to him. They, they say, you know that guy that you were telling us about? You pointed him out when we were over the Jordan. Everyone, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now, I, re, I read this the first time this week and it just puzzled me for days. I was really struggling. What are these guys cranky about? John told them, there's a guy coming. He's bigger than me. He's more important than me and you should follow him. And now it's happening. And they're confused. Why are everybody following them? What are they not understanding? Well, I think the problem is one of association to Jesus' authority. Many people would try to attach themselves to the influential teacher, the up-and-coming Messiah figure, because they wanted to be in his good graces. They wanted to partner with him, and maybe if they were close and faithful, they would get some kinds of rewards. Because, of course... Jesus does have all the authority. He is the Christ. If they get close to John and John is close to Jesus, maybe when this kingdom takes action, then, then these guys might get to rule over their own cities or their own region. They'll get their own palace. It's kind of similar to what James and John were saying in Mark chapter 10. They kind of pull Jesus aside. Hey, hey, Jesus, don't tell the other guys. Um, when you get in your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and your left? And what does Jesus tell them? That's not my authority to give. It's not my role in this kingdom. But John, John's disciples think that they can similarly weasel their way into Jesus' presence through John the Baptist. And John says something similar to what Jesus did in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So John's not going to fight for more glory, weasel his way to more influence or authority or respect because it doesn't belong to him. It's not his to take. It's not his to give. It's God's. And even what John has already, this responsibility to be the forerunner to the Messiah, that was given to him by God. 
He tries to remind them in verse 28 of what he taught them at the Jordan. They know this. My job is to usher in the Messiah. That's it. Nothing more. If John were to try to take more responsibility, more authority, that would be rebellion against the king he's telling people to submit to. That doesn't make any sense. John has prepared the way for the Messiah. Jesus is here. His work is done. He's satisfied. That's the role given to him. His disciples want him to bring them closer so they can be possible partners in this authority. But they have got their own identity wrong in relation to Jesus. They're not partners. They're servants. So he uses this common picture of a wedding in verse 29 to really make this this truth emotionally impactful. Jesus, he says, is the groom at a wedding. And all the people who are going to him are his bride. John's just the best man. It would be completely inappropriate for John as the best man to try to steal the bride, to try to influence the bride his direction, to try to maybe come really close to her just so he can get a little bit of this glory of their wedding. This doesn't make any sense. The role of the best man is to make sure the wedding goes as planned, that everybody's paying attention to the bride and groom. The bride comes in up front to meet her man and they end in wedded bliss. It's not just his responsibility. That's his greatest joy. What would make the best man happier in this moment than to see his own friend obtain his bride? Seeing that beautiful bride run into the arms of her, his friend, is his joy. This is what John says, his work is done. The bride is now running to Jesus. And that makes his heart so glad. And then he says in verse 30 that now that he's done his work, it's his responsibility to fade into the background. The wedding, once the wedding starts, nobody's looking at the best man. He's standing over on the side with a bunch of other people dressed the exact same way as him. He's supposed to blend in. And they're lined up to point everybody forward to the bride and groom. This is how it ought to be. So John says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's not to say his own joy is coming to an end. It's just going to take on a different form. Because John in his heart too knows that he is also part of the bride. He must run to Jesus. Why would he try to fight for more authority or influence when he already has everything he needs to satisfy all of his longings right there in Christ? See, it's not just their own identity these disciples got wrong. They got Christ's identity wrong. And now the gospel shifts here, putting on display the great authority of Christ. So we can all see how silly it is to think that we can force our way into influence in order to get a little bit of that attention for ourselves. To help God accomplish his redemptive work. It's just silliness when you exalt Christ before your eyes and see how powerful and amazing he is. So let's look at verses 31 to 36 again. 
which highlight Christ's heavenly authority. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the son in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So how is it that John can so confidently and joyfully surrender every, every effort to make a name for himself? When John says that he must decrease and Christ must increase, he's not saying that he's making himself worse off. He's trusting that exalting Christ will be better for him too. The author explains John's confidence throughout these verses. He says, he who comes from above is above all. Okay, that doesn't explain a whole lot yet. John's disciples knew that the Messiah was going to be king. Meaning he's going to have authority over everybody, right? But they didn't quite understand what everybody meant. Overall. Doesn't just mean over Jerusalem. It doesn't just mean he's the king of the nations. Jesus is the son of God. The ruler of heaven and earth. He has authority over all things visible and invisible. Physical and spiritual. Throughout this section, the author is reminding us of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. He's using a lot of the same phrases. Nobody is able to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. Nobody can join him in his work because we are so utterly incapable of comprehending the great majesty of Christ. And how deep we are in the darkness of a sinful, cursed world. Jesus has authority over all things because he's the only one who is from above. It's the same word that confused Nicodemus in verse 3 that he thought meant simply again. Emphasizing Jesus isn't just saying born again, born a second way, but particularly born from heaven of the water and the spirit. This is John's confidence. He doesn't need to go fight for himself because he trusts that Jesus is able to see far more and fight far better and accomplish much more because he is from above. We just have these earthly categories and earthly ideas, earthly ways of explaining things and pursuing the satisfaction of our desires. We speak in an earthly way. But Jesus is from heaven. In verse 32 explains that he came to bear witness to all the truths that we do not understand. The problem is nobody can receive it. Remember in chapter 1, the introduction to this gospel said the light came into the world, yet the world did not receive it. Jesus is so far above us, so glorious in his majesty, and we are so down in the dark. 
that even though he has come to help us, we can't see him. We can't receive him. Which then makes verse 33 a really jarring, impossible claim. The one who does receive his testimony proves that God is true. What? You just told us that we can't receive his testimony. And then he says, if we do receive the testimony, we become a seal that God is true. What in the world is he talking about? He's trying to argue that for someone to put their faith in Christ, to receive his word, that itself is a work of God proving that only Jesus has the power to, from above to give life. He explains it further in verses 34 and 35. God sent Jesus to bring his heavenly truth into the world. Jesus is the words of God. Everything Jesus said perfectly represents who God is and God's eternal word, God's eternal nature, his truth. What Jesus says is God's word. He's so unified with God for all eternity that Jesus has God's spirit without measure. Remember in the Old Testament, the spirit would come down on people to, in a certain measure, to empower them for a particular task. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson so he could push those columns out of the way and the building could come down and crush the Philistines. The spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah so he could go confront those prophets of Baal and show them how foolish they were. The spirit of the Lord came upon Moses to lead Israel through the wilderness in righteous judgment. The spirit of the Lord came upon Ezekiel to comfort the exiles with enduring hope. But the Spirit doesn't just come upon Jesus for a particular task. The Spirit is always with Jesus in fullness. Because verse 35 says, the Father loves the Son. Jesus is the Son of God, who from eternity past has been dwelling with God the Father in perfect love, sharing the Spirit back and forth in perfect harmony. And then the Father sends the Son with His Spirit into the world, not just giving Him a particular task. He gave Him the whole world so that He would redeem it and restore it and pull it into that eternal fellowship of love. The reason Jesus came wasn't just to be the king over a little piece of land and pull together a little band of faithful followers who, if they stick together, they can win the battle and enjoy the spoils of victory together. That's what these disciples had in mind. They had no idea that Jesus came full of the Spirit to win the victory for himself, by himself, and then from that victory, pour out his spirit from above so the world can enjoy God's eternal fellowship. He came to make all creation new so that those who receive him, their lives become proof, become the seal that God is true, that Jesus is the only one who has the power to transform. In the next chapter, we won't get into it much, until next week, 
It explains that Jesus himself wasn't actually the one dunking these guys in the water. It was just his disciples. Because John had in mind a different baptism. He said in chapter 1 that Jesus is going to baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. This is what John really wants. He knows he's got it by following Jesus. If someone follows this example of John the Baptist, and you just gladly, humbly serve in a very earthly way, ordinary way, you give your life to the end so that Jesus is exalted in your life, and then you are forgotten, that itself is proof that God is true to his word to satisfy all your needs. He is faithful to his promises to draw people to himself to enjoy him forever. And so this chapter ends simply with a call to believe. Believe that. Trust that. Our impulse is to always want to know what to do. But the only command we're given is believe. Trust that Jesus is God in the flesh from above. Come to give his life as a ransom, a payment on the cross for your sins. So that he could wash away your sin, purify your life, purify your old sinful flesh, and then raise you to a new life led by his spirit to live in fellowship with God now and forever. Notice the contrast of the final verse. If you believe that, if you believe, then you will have the life that your heart truly desires. This life that you're always so anxious to work towards achieving. This life that governments are always passing laws in order to produce, but they never get there. It always makes it worse. The contrast, though, the opposite choice is not simply doubt, but he says it's disobedience. Your only other option to belief is to try to work your way towards pleasure and fulfillment. But that's rebellion against God because you try to find it in every place apart from him. Apart from the bliss of being married to the heavenly groom. You're trying to steal his show. And if that's your choice, he says, the wrath of God remains on you. Remains, abides. John likes to use this word a lot. The way that this verse explains it, these these things aren't just coming sometime long into the future. You don't just get eternal life someday out there at the end of this life as kind of a consolation prize in case this one doesn't go so well. Eternal life starts the moment you believe and receive new birth by His Spirit. It begins when you have your eyes open to behold the majesty of Christ and then it becomes your joy to use the rest of your life To serve him so that you are forgotten and he is glorified. Being forgotten doesn't mean you lose your joy. It means you let him be the source of your joy forever. And if you don't believe, he says it's disobedience. God's wrath is upon you now. Certainly a final judgment is to come where everyone who clings to their sin will have their part in a lake of fire But even now, God is handing people over to their sinful destruction. It's it's like he's saying, fine, you don't want to receive my gifts? Receive the fruitless reward of your own efforts. 
A life constantly lived in contradiction to God's design, empowered by God's spirit, will only lead to further dissatisfaction. So you pursue career above all else and you get to the top and find it's a lonely place because you ran over everybody on your way there. You seek illicit sexual pleasure and it leads you into darker and darker corners of the world because none of it satisfies until you find yourself doing things that even wild beasts wouldn't do. You medicate your sorrows with drugs and alcohol. It just compounds the problem. You try to physically change your external appearance to match up with what you think you are internally. And it just leaves you further depressed and now scarred and infertile. You cover your sin with darkness. It will lead to greater despair. Do not hide in the shadows of darkness, but hide in the joyful forgiveness of Christ. John's example is this. Bear witness to Christ's authority through joyful servanthood. He's saying, accept who you are as God made you and for the purpose that he has given you. Eternal life with Jesus is what our hearts long for. It's all that John wants. Why would he scheme for more power, more influence and authority when trusting Jesus gives him the eternal Holy Spirit of God's love forever? What, what's better than that? So what does that look like for us who want to follow this example of John? None of us is called to be a prophet to a rebellious nation like John was. But that doesn't matter. If you are in Christ, you've been given the same spirit, and you have a role on this planet to point people to Jesus all the same. You must decrease, and he must increase. We don't glorify him by finding the biggest, most influential platform. We don't accomplish it by working our way to the top, to a place of importance, and then telling people about Jesus. Or doing something radical, making some big leap of faith, and then going to tell people about Jesus. We do it right in the place we've been called, with the gifts we've been given, in joyful service to Christ. And then we watch him do his amazing transformation work. But first, that means falling in love with him. Run to him as his bride. Receive his testimony of his eternal majesty, his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection and ascension to the throne in heaven. Jesus is God and his work is the only work that will accomplish God's purposes, not yours. No matter how important you think you can become, no matter how eloquent your message, how friendly or kind or radical or hardworking you can become. You do not have the ability to accomplish God's purposes. Only he does. And only Christ, being from heaven, is worthy of any praise anyway. The victory is his alone. And look to him, working his victory in other people. Listen for his promises in his word. Fall in love with him by his spirit. And then as you see him as he is, high and lifted up, everything else you do will seem so insignificant in comparison. Everything. That's where you must be. Surrendered 
completely to Christ's heavenly authority. And then when you're humbled beneath his majesty, now you get to work in joyful servanthood. Proof of his faithfulness comes through your weakness. So embrace your smallness. Embrace your insignificance. It's the perfect way for Jesus to show off his power. You are not the main character in this story of life. Jesus is. But you are still called to be a joyful, excellent secondary character. Whatever your gifts and resources, you need to remember they are from above, from heaven. And they were given to you to build up the church into maturity of Christ so we together can be a witness in this world. They were given to you to be an excellent spouse, showing your husband or wife, giving them a taste, a sweet taste of the eternal pleasures of God. They were given to you to be parents who don't dominate your children with your story, but you prepare them to become characters in his story. Your gifts and resources were given to you, not so you can work hard and receive all the recognition at work, but so you can work into the Lord. And people can see the creative power of Christ at work through you. You can invite your neighbors to your table, a simple thing of just make them the sweetest desserts so that you are creating categories for them to understand the sweetness of God toward you. Or enjoy your sports. Play your sports with passion and endurance that you feel God's pleasure as you run and reminded of Christ's endurance on your behalf, enduring the cross for you. If you're a visitor here with us today, we just want to encourage you to find a church that gives you a job like that, where you forget yourself, you forget the church, and you see Jesus and love Jesus and delight in Jesus and work for Jesus all the more, where you can do your role well and trust Jesus to pour out his spirit to do his work. You don't have to feel pressure to always... Clearly articulate the gospel with every person you meet. You just embrace your gifts as from above. Partner them with a local church full of different gifts. And do your role well trusting Jesus to pour his spirit out and open the eyes of others as a proof that God is true to his word. In Christ, you already have eternal joy secured. So you can let go of your efforts to find it in any other thing. Just exalt Christ in your ordinary way and see him work his power. Your joy will increase in your life in proportion to the amount that you decrease and he increases. So bear witness to Christ's authority through joyful servanthood. Let's pray. God, use my weakness and the weakness of all these brothers and sisters to show off your strength, your beauty, your glory, your majesty. We can't accomplish anything on our own except for what you give us from above by your spirit. So help us fall in love all the more with Jesus and run to him and serve him well, trusting that the joy, the greater joy is even yet to come. Amen.